Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Institutional Portfolio Manager Elon Collette to the program. Elon is part of the Global Asset Allocation Team, which manages approximately $77.2 billion in multi-asset class funds for Canadian investors. Elon gives an overview of the global markets, why we might appear to be in a recession, and how the GAA team is positioning themselves in this current market environment. Bloomberg recently described Canada as appearing to be in a recession. Elon points out that might in fact be true, as the flow of data in Canada has stalled, our GDP flatlined post-recovery, and we may in fact look back at this as a recession after some data revision. He adds it's not going to get easier with elevated debt loans and lots of tightening from the Bank of Canada. Even with the Canadian dollar taking a dive, our economy appears to be resilient, which Alon says is more akin to sustainability. Nevertheless, even with elevated rates of debt and high interest rates, growth in Canada hasn't slowed down and our unemployment rates have been relatively unaffected. The GAA team does expect and is positioned for a further weakening of the Canadian dollar. He adds they are underweight Canadian equities and the dollar, overweight inflation-protected assets, meaning commodity producers, and inflation-protected debt. Overall, Elon says they are very close to their strategic allocation. This podcast was recorded on October 31st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We're going to dig into the positioning, dying to hear ultimately, you know, where you take this. Some of this, I feel like you've been talking about for a long, long time. But in the numbers that we're looking at right now, it does appear that we are set up for at least a technical recession. Why does Bloomberg use the worm appear to be in a recession? You know, recession math is complicated. So, for example, in the U.S., the recession is the recession dates are decided by the NBER. In Canada, we don't really have something similar. We have a C.D. Howe Institute that will will do recession dates as well. I mean, these are, again, these are academics who try to think about if there are enough indicators moving in a certain way to delineate a recession. Unfortunately, the problem is they tell us that, you know, a year or two later, oh, by the way, two years ago, you were in a recession. If we look at the Canadian data, the, the flow of Canadian data right now, I mean, growth has stalled, right? That is undeniable. That is in the data. The level of GDP has been a flat line for, you know, two years, really post, post-recovery, post post the surge in the recovery. It's not impossible with data revisions that we look back and say, you know, actually this period of time right now is, is a recession, was an outright recession with declines in growth. Again, we don't want to get too finicky with whether it's two consecutive quarters and if that includes employment loss. What we know right now is growth has stalled in Canada and 
we don't think it's going to really get much easier given the elevated debt loads and 475 basis points of tightening by the Bank of Canada. We've seen the dollar, the loony take a bit of a dive on on this. Does this sort of confirm or at least get much closer to confirming that the rate hiking cycle is over in Canada? Uh, it's interesting. So I, I certainly believe that, you know, we're closer to the end than the beginning, but that's kind of a useless sentence for me to provide. So let me let me provide let me provide some context around that. Um, what do we know? Wait, right. We know that the bank needed to be here and they were here. And the models would have told them to take this nice step function to slowly raise rates uh, to, you know, to get inflation back under control, which, again, is the only job from the Bank of Canada. But indecision is strong, is more powerful than decision, right? So it's much easier to make no decision than to make a decision because the bank, as was the Fed, you know, they were afraid of, you know, choking off anything that resembled a recovery. And what happened is central banks were late globally, and then they moved very quickly. And we had 475 basis points of tightening by the bank and 525 basis points of tightening by, by the Fed. I don't, I don't think there's much more left in terms of rate hikes. Um, the, the, the reason I, I sort of say that in a cagey way is if inflation uh, comes down and remains stubbornly elevated, right? So we got to 8% and we've come down, say, to the fours, roughly. We need to get to two. I mean, three is not the new two. Two is the new two. If inflation remains stubbornly elevated, even at three or three and a half percent, then the bank will need to do more, right? The bank will need to do more. Now, they certainly don't want to do that because of the vulnerability of Canadian households with respect to debt, but they have one job, and that is to keep inflation low, predictable, and stable between one and three percent. What is different from yesterday, actually, genuinely? I mean, we've got this number, so the markets will react. The, the currency will be the valves through which we'll see some reaction. You've mentioned that before. I mean, is is that what we're seeing here? Is there is there sort of a, potentially a sustained path? I guess what I mean is when we got the delivery of this information this morning, is this sort of where the loony will take a bit of a further dive? It hasn't been performing beautifully over the last month or so anyway. But you know, no, exactly. I mean, so, right. So our, our thought for a long time has been there was a remarkable amount of resilience in the Canadian economy or what appeared as resilience. We think it's the better word for it is sustainability. We can talk about why that existed, but ultimately we didn't believe that any of those factors that contributed to the sustainability really removed the can from the road. They sort of kicked the can. And that, you know, that elevated rates of debt intersecting much higher rates was going to lead to a pullback in growth, uh, you know, and potentially job loss, rising unemployment. And all of that is normally combined with, the one sort of valve that is the fastest to adjust, which is the bilateral exchange rate, the Canadian dollar, uh, or even not even bilaterally, just the value of the Canadian dollar. You know, from my time at the Bank of Canada, I still think about the movement in the Canadian dollar as being a function of three things. Number one, commodity prices. Commodity prices up, Canadian dollar up. But truth be told, that link has basically broken over the last two, three years, right? Last year, for example, we had $100 oil. Right now we have elevated oil prices. Canadian dollar has been a flat line to down, right? So cross that off the list. The second one is 
a differential between interest rates, right? So if the Fed ends up here and the bank is here, or perhaps the bank even has to cut if there's meaningful stress, that gap of interest rates provides an upward lift to the US dollar, which is a, a downward push for the Canadian dollar. And then the third one, and this is kind of the bucket where we put everything we have a hard time explaining is, is sentiment. Um, and I joke, but it actually is incredibly important. Sentiment weighs very heavily on the Canadian dollar, uh, both global sentiment, but particularly any sort of sentiment within Canada, you know, a rough patch for GDP or job loss, as you, as you mentioned uh, correctly, Pamela, you know, that first valve that, that gets released is the, is the Canadian dollar. And again, we expect a further depreciation of the Canadian dollar and we're positioned that way. Let me ask you, okay, so I, I get to the positioning right after this question. What we'll often talk about, you know, things can look bad, but actually getting some bad news ultimately allows some digestion and then markets will look through long till that. If you had told me, you know, so 18 months ago when we were talking, 24 months ago, if you had told me we're going to have 475 basis points of hikes by the Bank of Canada on top of an exceptionally levered Canadian household, I would tell you right now we would see declines in consumer spending, increases in unemployment, job loss, you know, and, and most importantly, declines in discretionary consumer spending, right? So, you right. know, on there would be a lot of sea-dos and ski-dos for sale on, on Kijiji. And anecdotally, that is happening in the West, but that really took longer than we would have expected to happen. And is, and honestly, you have to squint in the consumer spending data to really see meaningful cracks. They're starting to appear, but you have to squint. But I do think, you know, the contributors to the resilience or the sustainability, whatever, however you want to term it, again, they're important to identify and something we wrote about and probably worth mentioning. So in our, in our Q3 thought leadership paper, so we write a paper every quarter that really highlights our views. It's short and jargon-free and investor-friendly. In our Q3 paper, we talked about the contributing factors to the resilience in Canada. And we came up with a few reasons. The first was, you know, there was a meaningful cushion of accumulated savings, right? So again, we're, you know, if you remember, we're locked into our house in 2020. You can only buy the goods, right? You can't buy the services. We've talked about this. You buy all the Pelotons and air fryers, but you can't buy the, you can't consume travel or leisure or restaurant meals. And that resulted in the, in a cushion of excess savings being built up for the average Canadian household. That is getting run off, right? So we worked with our research team to estimate, to, to answer the question, given the rate of change in the decline of savings, excess savings, and given that Canadians are now paying more to service their debt, when will that cushion of excess savings be gone? And the answer we came up with was between the end of this year and the, and the sort of the middle of Q2, right? So that, that to me is a kicking of the can. The, the second one, and then I'll come up for some air maybe, is the, the second one is also important. We called it effective forbearance. You know, sometimes it's referred to as creative mortgage math. Again, the, the anecdote that I like to share here is I was having a conversation with an advisor in July at a Jays game uh, who may be on this call actually. And he told me that, you know, a lot of his clients have mortgages that mortgage payments that have gone from $2,000 to $3,000 or $3,500. But because they ratcheted up a lot in terms of that discretionary debt, you know, the cottages, the condos, the sea dues, the ski dues, they can't afford $2,001. And 
And so their extra $1,500 is getting sort of pinned on to the end of the life of the loan. And they have mortgages that are amortizing in the 70, 80, 90 year horizon. Now, that's not entirely correct. They're not actually amortizing in that, in that period. But if you summed up those monthly payments, it would take 70, 80, 90 years. Again, that's a kicking of the can. The housing market in Canada was on fire in 2019 and 20. Most of the mortgages have five-year terms, meaning 2024 and 25 is, are the years in which we'll see the effect of these resets. These resets are happening every day, but 24 and 25 are going to be um, particularly okay, telling. Okay, fascinating. So, so knowing all this, some of the points I've heard you say before, some of them have led ultimately to the positioning that you have right now, and that's and that's sort of it feels like there was a go button hit somehow today by that release. But that said, what have you previously and already been positioned for? Give us give us sort of the broad outline, and then we'll go more in depth. Sure. So right now, you know, if I think about um, the Global Balance Fund, that's a sixty forty fund made up of stocks and bonds. That's globally diversified, diversified across managers and styles. Right now, that 60-40 is sitting very, very close to the 60 and the 40. Okay. Right? So, um, but there's a lot more underneath the surface, actually. So that 60-40 can be a 75-25 or a 45-55, right? There are plus or minus 15% bands on that fund. But um, right now, we're very, very sort of neutral beta, as we say, right? Which means, in English, that means close to 60 and close to 40. But there are very important underweights and overweights that lead to that 60 and that 40. Most importantly, we're underweight Canadian equities, we're underweight the Canadian dollar, um, we're overweight, so that relates to the Canada thesis, which we discussed, we're overweight um, inflation protection, whether it be commodity producers and inflation protected debt. Okay. And, um, and then we have some other overweights and underweights throughout the fund, you know, really to enhance the income side and perhaps take advantage of some um, attractive valuations. But on net, we're very, very close to our strategic allocation. That's fascinating. Okay, and so just take a minute because I feel like you've had to talk the whole time. So tell us ultimately going back to the loony, for instance, and you know that speaks to the Canadian equity underweight that you have there. What sort of shock absorber ultimately is that? I mean, you've said it's the valve and, and so on, but I'm just sort of curious if, if you just completely avoid the Canadian dollar. I don't know if you're completely avoiding Canadian dollar, but but just sort of speak to: Are you wrapped in a bit of cotton wool right now? If you're not exposed to that at this moment, right? I mean, so uh, you know, there's a few ways to think about this, right? So the way we think about the Canadian dollar in the context of our funds is, um, you know, we discussed the drivers of the Canadian dollar: the commodities, the interest rate differential, and the sentiment, but. The way we use the Canadian dollar in our funds is really as a shock absorber, right? So the Canadian dollar is a cyclical currency. So, right. So think back to the last um, five or six months of last year, for example. I mean, I know none of us want to revisit last year, but think back to the last five or six months of last year. Like Equities the lows of October, we're looking at sort of what happened. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the last five, six months of last year, equities and credit came under pressure. And so too did that Canadian dollar, right? Canadian dollar went from the 82 cent mark, say to the 72 cent mark. By us being underweight the Canadian dollar, uh, you know, we build in a shock absorber or some resiliency into our funds and our funds get hurt less. So in the event of a Canadian, that's the most important part. In the event yeah. of a Canadian dollar 
depreciation. If we're underweight and we're underweight by, I think, 12% right now, our funds get hurt less. Um, and that, so it is, it is an effective and important risk management tool. The last thing I'll say there is we actually uh, have done work looking at two similar funds, one currency neutral and one where we have the ability to move our currency position. And sure enough, over a long period of time, the one in which we have the ability to tactically move our currency position is less volatile over a longer period of time. So again, the end goal is to smooth out the ride for the end investor, for the clients of the people that are on this call. Take us through some of the other sort of pieces of the story around the world. So we're, we're focused on Canada, we've been talking about that and you know where you want to be exposed or underexposed to that particular currency. Around the world, it really is quite a region by region story right now. It's 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 fascinating. I mean, I wonder how we look at it in terms of the diversification that would be possible of looking at China versus Europe, maybe going through some real issues right now. I mean, there's there's a lot of very different stories around the world. What's attractive to be regional? Yeah, so that that is absolutely the case. I think um, you know, this speaks to uh this speaks to the need. For having and assembling a really great team of underlying managers, right? So it used to be the case that the U.S. business cycle dictated the global business cycle. Right. But, you know, there's research to, su to suggest that China, with the rise of China the, and, and the movement in the emerging market business cycle, that there is this sort of decoupling or an increased decoupling between the U.S. business cycle and the emerging market business cycle. In in an event like that, or if that's the case, you know, you may be underweight, for example, Canada or the U.S. and slightly overweight emerging markets. So you don't have you, you may not necessarily have sort of consistent positioning because one business cycle is kind of dictating the global business cycle. But really, I think the most important point here is this speaks to the need for really strong underlying managers. Um, and again, so what we try to do on on our side is. We reach across fidelity in Canada, in the U.S., and globally, pick the managers that we want for the asset class, for the style, for the geography, right? So no managers are forced upon us. We choose the team that we, we want to assemble, assemble a great team, and then lean in or out of asset classes or currencies or styles. And I like that you mentioned it, Pamela, at the start of the call, but, you know, we're at the 10-year anniversary of these, of the, of the managed portfolios in their current form. And speaking to those two ways to win, the managers and leaning in or out of asset classes, both have been meaningfully additive over the past 10 years. Um, and so you've seen that chart before showing, you know, the, the Canadian 60-40 and the actual experience of global balance, getting the wedge between the two at the end in cumulative space is like 26%, 25 or 26%. So um I'm not sure, Pamela, if I answered the question you asked or if I answered the question no, no, I wanted I, to answer. I'm but. glad you brought that, you went back to that because it, it, it speaks to, we started off the conversation of sort of a data point, what it you know means in terms of consequences ultimately on the other side. And then, and then you pulled us back to sort of you know what you need to avoid and, and so on in just the, the volatility of markets, which is, which is going to always be the case. Um, yeah. I wonder if we can spend a minute on the Canadian sort of productivity story, I, I've heard you in the past talk about, for instance, the U.S. productivity, how Canada compares. I think we spent some time on it, but can you just take us through what it is we're gunning towards and missing ultimately within that story? 
This is really the focus of our Q4 thought leadership paper entitled Potential. The Q4 paper, which was released fairly recently, examined a very, very specific uh, topic. Um, actually, I think it's the most interesting, one of the most interesting papers we've ever written. And what we did in it is we examined the case for higher potential growth in the U.S. And really what that means is the potential for a soft landing in the U.S. And then we contrasted it with Canada. And so that that relates to your question, uh, Pamela, about, you know, the sort of lagging historical performance of Canadian productivity. But if I can sneakily back up and just sort of talk about the case for higher potential growth in the U.S., that will maybe set up this comparison with Canada. You know, so so what we do in the paper is we examine this idea that what if because of, say, AI investments in clean technology, more flexible work arrangements, like the optimizing of schedules, what if the potential growth rate in the U.S. is actually higher than what we're observing or what we think we're observing? What if the stall speed in the U.S. is much higher? If that's the case, it's a wonderful scenario, right? I'll be quite clear. If, if that's the case, the employment market can remain tight. Inflation will fall you know, beautifully. The Fed doesn't need to be as tight necessarily. And equities will absolutely applaud this going forward. Now, it's very, very hard to recognize in real time if this is actually happening, but it has happened in the past, right? So in the 90s, in the mid, mid to late 90s, you know, we had the, the invention of the internet. And in the 90s, this is sort of what we observed in the US. The recession models that we were examining, which are very similar to the ones we look at today, were flashing increased recession risk, but it never really appeared. And it didn't appear because the potential growth rate of the US economy was much higher than what we thought it was because, again, because Al Gore invented the internet. And, and sure enough, that's, that was very, very meaningful. And we had, well, we know the equity performance that we had in the mid to late 90s. So the first question is, how does it happen? We think, you know, with these advances, it can happen. Two, has it happened in the past? The answer is yes. But the third question is, I think, Pamela, your original question, which is, that sounds amazing for the U.S. Can it happen in Canada? And this is where, you know, we need to sort of pump the brakes a little bit. We think it's we think while it's likely and possible that this will happen in the U.S. And to be quite honest, I think the likelihood of a soft landing in the U.S. has materially increased in the last six or seven months. Really? I okay. think this is going to be harder to achieve in Canada. You know, the historical performance of productivity growth in Canada versus the U.S., is very different, right? So the U.S. productivity growth looks like this. It's basically straight up since the 60s. Canada's is straight up. And then in kind of the mid-90s, it becomes a flat line. Hmm. So Canada has had historically pretty dismal productivity growth, a record of productivity growth. There's a, there are, there's a huge amount of research on this. The OECD, the Bank of Canada, every institute in Canada, every economist in Canada, you know, so this has been one of those quandaries that has sort of flummoxed economists for a long time. Could but you broadly it, point to a more regulated society is a little bit trickier to kind of get lift off? Yeah. So there are a whole host of potential reasons that people speak to, right? You know, lack of competitiveness in certain sectors or in parts of the economy, less flexible labor markets. You know, a lot of people speak to the uncompetitiveness if you're endowed with natural resources. I mean, there are many, many... There's a, okay. there's a huge lit review basically on on the potential factors, right? Sometimes that's you know this commodity curse idea. All, what what I do know is what the stats show, which is we have a pretty we have more work to do on the productivity side. Let me put it nicely. 
Yeah. Um, and for that reason, we think the likelihood of this boost to productivity growth happening is more from likely AI, in the US. From, so, I mean, just like, you know, the border's right there, AI and the green tech story, as you say, is potentially really going to power things or certainly a scenario. And exactly. or why doesn't it work here? And and part of that is is potentially answered by, it, you know, all the reasons it, you just said. Exactly. I mean, so so again, the main takeaway from the paper is it's it's possible productivity and potential growth is higher in the US. If that's the case, you know, we'll get the right moves in inflation, a tight labor market, and positive moves in um, certainly in equity markets. Not necessarily the case in Canada. And then relating that all to positioning, again, we we keep and maintain an underweight to um, to Canadian equities because of because of the stress that we expect Canadian households to have and what that will do to discretionary consumer spending uh, and the labor market. Um, but again, you'll see these tactical positions evolve. Uh, I, w I will say it would be very unprecedented to have 525 basis points of tightening by the Fed in the U.S. and not have a hard landing and not have a recession. But but again, it's I mean, these this is a very similar story to what we observed in the mid to late 90s in the U.S. We did not. We did not get that recession and, and we had, you know, tr sort of tremendous performance. Okay, so speak to the equity exposure versus so 60-40 is what you said, and you're very close to it, and perhaps more U.S. Can you just fill out that picture for us a bit? Sure. So, you know, um, as of the end of September, we had, you know, a, a sizable underweight to Canadian equities, a, a slight underweight to, um, to U.S. equities, but again, that, that could evolve over time. And then... You know, slight overweights to um, international equities, emerging market equities, and then uh, and then the largest equity overweight is actually commodity producers, right? So, um, you know, my you you know Pamela very well that my trick is to bring everything back to inflation. With regards to inflation, we've seen we've certainly seen some progress, right? We've seen inflation move from eight percent down to say four percent, but really more work needs to be done, um, and for that reason. We maintain overweights to the asset classes that protect investors against the damaging effects of inflation. Now they're smaller than they were in the past, um, right? And that and that speaks to how our positions evolve. Our positions evolve with the flow of research and the flow of information and the flow of data. Inflation prints have improved. They haven't improved completely. It's not a the box hasn't been checked, but the level of inflation protection that we have in the funds has been pulled in a little bit. It, it's still there, but it's been pulled in. If we move from 5% to 5.25%, what could the impact be? Or is it more of it's high and it's staying high? So the higher for longer or, you know, an incremental rate hike ultimately is the question. You know, the effect of rate hikes, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd be overly concerned with a move from 5 to 5.25 or 5, even 5 to 4.75. These are, these are marginal changes. The most important fact is rates are much higher than they were a few years ago. In our view, rates are going to maintain, rates will, the Fed will maintain that restrictive stance and so will the Bank of Canada until there's overwhelming evidence that inflation is on a path back to target, right? Back to 2%. And so again, our view has been for some time that rates would remain elevated. And I don't think we should be overly concerned whether it will whether there's another 25 basis point hike or a 25 basis point cut, we think rates will remain roughly where they are until there's overwhelming evidence that inflation is back 
heading back to target. And again, the Fed and the Bank of Canada will tell us when they're seeing that progress because they'll alter their language, right? And and so they're very good at kind of leading us to the to the answer. Elon Collette, it's a pleasure always to speak with you and just fascinating to get a little bit of insight into the fourth quarter report and ultimately the positioning for GAA. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon on Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.